come out of my own accord. I didn't come from my own glory. Uh, I didn't come to do my own work. I came to do the work of the Lord. And, and look back at what God has already done and accomplished in and through you. Uh, chapter 3 comes. He starts talking about Timothy's visit. And Timothy re- had returned already and had given such a good report how they were um, full of faith and, and love. Uh, but then Paul says towards the end of chapter 3 that he wants to perfect the things of which they're lacking. Meaning this, as we talked about, and as we know all too well, that there is no perfect Christian, right? There's no perfect people, there's no perfect Christians, nor in our Christian walk do we ever get to the place where we have arrived or where we can grow no further, right? Until we leave this world and until we have a glorified body, we have growing to do, right? And with growing, we have growing pains, we have setbacks, we, we falter, and we fail when, when we get in our flesh, but nevertheless, what we find is that Paul was encouraging them, there's some things that we want strengthened, and I want to come to you to help you with that. He even prays night and day is what he talks about in the end of the chapter uh, for these things. And now chapter 4 is going to get into, uh, once more, everyone thinks of chapter 4 as just being about the rapture and the end time, that sort of thing. We'll get there, right? If we remember, Paul's motivation, much of it, is the fact that Christ is going to call his people out of here, right? That is uh, not just the Lord's motivation, Paul's motivation, it is our motivation as well to do what we are called to do here in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is going to call us to live like a Christian. If you are a Christian, it is a natural thing to then live like a Christian. If you are not a Christian, it is not natural to live like a Christian. But here's the thing that we must understand. God determines what a Christian is. God determines what holy living is. And so we live in a society and a culture that everyone wants to hold to their own truth, to their own ideas, to their own uh, theology about, well, you know, I think being a Christian is this, right? You ask the average person, are you a Christian? And around here you're going to get, well, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, well you know, uh, well, I'm a, uh, uh, right? And then we've got a plethora of stories that come after that, which goes from anywhere of, um, you know, I've been born again. Right? Well, well, that's nice. What does that mean, right? Uh, to maybe given the, the gospel and, and, and talking about, you know, why there was a point in time in my life where God convicted me of my sins, showed me that Christ died for my sins and rose again, and I put my trust in Him. Well, well, praise the Lord for that, right? Then there's others who go, well, you know, I've been baptized or I'm a good person. Or maybe they don't even say I'm a good person, but they go, I don't do this and this and this, so therefore my good will somehow be better than that. Because as long as I don't do these, then, then God will be pleased with me. But that's not the case at all. There's no pleasing God without faith, faith and trust, not in ourselves, but faith and trust in His work, in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to see here in this chapter is that we are called to live what we already are. If you are saved, and he's writing to saved people, live that way. We often put the, the cart before the horse, right? But God understand the reason why we can live and should live as a Christian is because, first of all, we are a Christian. Right? We're not trying to achieve Christianity. We are living out what is already truthful, what has already been accomplished, what has already been done for us. Now let's read here verses 1 through 12 just to help us with the whole passage and to get us in this context. And then we're going to be looking specifically and mostly at verses 1 and 2 today. It says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What's the will of God? Your sanctification. Right? It is the will of God that you grow, that you abound, that you continue to abide and abound in Christ. 
Furthermore, he says that ye should abstain from fornication. That's the will of God. He begins with fornication. Why? Because clearly this was going to be a problem and was already a problem in their church, in their culture, in their society, much as we see in our day and age. It's everywhere. So then here's what he gets to. He says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'll spit it out in a minute. Concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are, uh, which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Meaning he's saying, you're doing a good job at loving, but abound more and more. Right? No, no Christian is, go- oh, hey, you know, they've got the whole love thing down. I've got nothing nailed down as a Christian. Right? I don't have one thing in my Christian life where it's like, yeah, that's, that's right there. That's right where it needs to be. Right? Paul, Paul doesn't. Timothy doesn't. Silas doesn't. The church at Thessalonica didn't. We don't. It starts on an individual heart, an individual basis. But we must have that desire to keep going. You say, well, are we striving for perfection? Well, that sounds nice, but we'll never achieve it on this side of the grave. Nevertheless, God has given us what we need to live a life that is holy, set apart, and pleasing to Him. Furthermore, we get in here and he says, And that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may, uh, and that ye may, uh, may have lack of nothing. He ends chapter 3. You've got some things that are lacking. Chapter 4, he says, get these things nailed down and you won't be lacking in them. Right? God has not saved us to keep us lacking. The Christian life is not about a struggle where we continue to lack. Rather, God, if we're lacking, do you think that God has the supply to fulfill our need? Absolutely. Do you think that God wants to give you what you lack? Absolutely. This is why time and time again, Old and New Testament, we find, go to God with everything that you are lacking. God shall supply your need. Now here, he's not talking about a physical need of going, well, you know, I need a new pair of shoes. I need a new boat. I need a new car. None of those. What we need more than anything is a deeper, more sanctified, holy walk with our God. And we're lacking in that department many times. And it's God who can supply what we lack in. Now, let's get here into verses 1 and 2 today. Furthermore, here, right, he's pressing on in this letter. Stott writes, One of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics in both our teaching and our practice. In consequence, we have become known rather as a people who preach the gospel than as those who live and adorn it. What we have done in our society is that as the world has changed, the church has changed. The church has changed to where now, and I'm not talking about legalism, pharisaical stuff, but we've lost the idea of having standards. We think that standards is old-fashioned. We think that standards is for legalists. 
because now we've equated the word standard or standards or having biblical standards with legalism or Phariseeism. It's not. God requires and expects us to live according to how we've been saved, to walk worthy of the vocation which we were called, to walk worthy of being saved, to live like it. We have exchanged some things in our Christian life and in our churches that never should have happened. We often have this take place in churches where we preach moralistically, right? We preach good morals, good values, and we sprinkle in Jesus with it. That's not Christianity. There's plenty of lost people who've got some, some decent morals. I've known some incredibly immoral people who would call themselves Christian and even serve in churches. That's not good, nor should it ever be. Nor should it ever be acceptable. It's not acceptable to the Lord. Why should we accept such? The ethics of Christianity is not the moralism that the world might be able to preach. It is boiled down, rooted in, founded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we have been saved by Him. Our position is in Him. Therefore, now our practice is Him through us that we live a life now yielded to Him, and that we live a life yielded to His Word through the power of His Holy Spirit, that now we are no longer what we used to be. The Christian life should not look like your old life. The, the, the life of a Christian who is to live and walk in the light as he is in the light should not be in the darkness of the old man. Paul continues here to help them with perfecting the things that they are lacking in their faith. And he now focuses on some very specific needs dealing with Christian ethics and living. I remember one of, uh, one of my Bible college classes was Christian ethics, and I thought, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I took it, I think, sophomore year, and I had to take it, the book. I still got the book, Norman Geisler, Christian Ethics, great book, highly recommend it. But it covered a bunch of topics, and I remember before taking the class and just starting this class, I'm going, what in the world do I need to take a Christian ethics class for? I'm a Christian. I'm in Bible college. I'm starting to be a pastor. I mean, th this makes no sense to me. Why would I need Christian ethics? Well, Christian ethics is studying the Bible and yielding to the Bible, right? Christian ethics is not a, a psychology textbook. And, and even, I, I, you know, I, while I might love that textbook that, that was used, and it, when it was a great help and it covered topics that I don't even know were an issue, Right? Nevertheless, what we find is that the Bible is the Christian ethics textbook. If you want to know if something is right or wrong, here's what you do. You open up this Bible, you read it, you study it, you meditate upon it, and you yield to it even if it has to correct you. That's Christian ethics. Christian ethics is not so much of the law of going, do this, don't do that, speed limit is this, a uh, road sign means this, right? It is going, this is what God has said and spoken, meaning this is God's standard. There is no other. Nor should there be a lowering or a highing uh, or a raising up of, of our own sort of standard where what we have in today's world is sort of this pendulum where we've got one side that goes, we don't need standards at all. And then we've got one side on this side that we often get associated with that should never happen either, and what they do is they go, well, the Bible says this, so we're going to take it up a notch, right? But that's not good either. Meanwhile, the Bible is there that tells us all that we need to live as a Christian. And it equips us for all that we need to live as a Christian. We believe, let me ask you today, do we believe that the rapture is imminent? 
Do we believe that the Lord would, could call us out of here any day? I do. Do you? All right. A few of you. Still a little quiet, a little sleepy this morning. That's okay. The rapture would wake you up. <laughs> if we believe that, then what we must understand is that the hour that we are in is an hour for holiness. It is not the hour to revert back to man-made traditions or to make man-made laws that are not near as good as God's anyways, nor is it the time to go, well, since Christ is coming back, let's live as we want because time is short, right? You only live once, right? That's not the case. Now is the time. If we are ever to be a holy people, now is the day. Today is the day, not tomorrow. Today is the day. Not yesterday because yesterday is gone. Not tomorrow because it's not here and it might not be, be here, but today, this hour is the hour. As McDonald puts it, chapter 4 opens with a plea to walk in holiness and thus to please God and closes with the taking up of the saints. Paul was probably thinking of Enoch when he wrote this. Notice the similarity. Enoch walked with God. Enoch pleased God. And Enoch was taken up. The apostle commends the believers for their practical holiness but urges them to advance to new levels of accomplishment. Holiness is a process, not an achievement. I love that last phrase that he puts in there. We think that we can be sanctified. We get saved, boom, and now I'm saved once and for all and forevermore. And we think that we can be sanctified once and for all and forevermore. I wish it was that easy. Holiness is a process. It is not just a, a destination of what we're trying to achieve or an end goal. Holiness must be decided day by day as we trust the Lord give our lives to the Lord as we forsake the flesh and we die to ourselves, and we live for Him as we live as Paul lived, as we live with Timothy and Silas and, and many here that, that wrote these words to us and for us, for our equipping and edifying so that we might see that the greatest thing that God desires for your life is holiness. We often think that God wants more for our life than holiness. He wants our wants us to be happy too. I can tell you this. If you are holy, there will be a joy of the Lord. I will take the joy of the Lord over a happy fleshliness. And what we think is that because we are so ingrained in this world, we're so used to instant gratification, we're so used to feeling good, and we're honestly, we're used to being comfortable. The average Christian today is much more comfortable than they realize. The average American Christian today is far more comfortable than they ever should be. We, we have to trust God for very little. We can, we can go uh, to the ATM and get a little bit of cash to go get groceries or to go out to eat or, or, or whatever it might be. We don't live in fear for our lives because people hate us as Christians. They might not like us as Christians, but so far here in Carroll County, nobody's losing their head for Christ. What we find is that we have believed that somehow, someway, that God wants us to be really happy and a little holy because after all, He knows we can't be perfect. So God knows we can't be perfect, but He has equipped us to be holy unto Him. And the reason why our homes are in a mess, the reason why our community is in a mess, is not because there is just poor leadership or one side of the political fence or the other. It is because we have failed in holiness. We've got false holiness. We've got a lack of holiness. And we've got most of us just sort of floating somewhere in between, bouncing back and forth where hey, we had a good holy hour or two, maybe a good holy day with the Lord. We didn't do too bad. We were pretty good. And then the next day we're back and forth. 
that Christian life is not to be a yo-yo. It is to be yielded wholly unto Him. As we get into verse 1 here, we see sort of that big picture as we look at this idea of the hour of which we live that Christ is going to call us out of here. Therefore, our lives should be holy. Verse 1 tells us that Paul beseeches and exhorts the church to walk in what they have learned and live uh, live it out in a Christian life of abounding and abiding in the Lord. He says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you, right? The idea of both, we're going to see, they're very similar. They go hand in hand. Beseeching is often a sort of personal, uh, and then the, the exhorting is sort of more strong and authoritative. Nevertheless, the two go hand in hand with Paul because as we've already addressed, in chapter 2, Paul has already told them, I love you like a mom loves her children, and I exhort you or teach you like a father teaches and trains his children. Now as we come here to verse, uh, chapter one, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, We beseech you, brethren, he's speaking to believers, we are brethren, we are part of his brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Meaning, keep walking, right? Keep living what you believe. Keep receiving. Keep walking. Keep pleasing. Keep abounding more and more and more. Wanamaker puts it this way, Paul exhorts his brothers and sisters to continue living according to the behavioral pattern that they had received from him. Epitomen, or we implore you, we beseech you, and uh, parakalumen, we exhort, are virtually synonymous here and together emphasize that Paul required his converts to behave in a manner appropriate for followers of Christ. Do you think that Paul is a legalist? Do you think that Paul is a Pharisee? He used to be. I would say that Paul here finally got what it means But if Paul preached this message in most of our churches today, we would say, what a legalist. Now, there's some legalistic preaching in today's uh, preaching circuits. You know why? Because they're not preaching what God has given through Paul to us, but rather they are preaching what they think and what they feel and what someone else who is higher up on the preaching circuit totem pole told them to say. So that way they can be viewed as more high and holy than everyone else in the pew. We're not. I need this as much as you do. Now look at this. Ewart writes, although Paul speaks with authority, he addresses his readers as brothers. This tender appeal is made with the consciousness that he is speaking in Christ's name in the Lord Jesus, by the Lord Jesus. So there is both an affection and an authority with this. That's what preaching and teaching is. It should be both affectionate because there is a care for the concern of the hearts and minds and homes of those that are being preached to, but as well as an authority. And the only authority that Paul has is by and from and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no authority. Outside of Christ, there is no authority to speak upon anything. And this is why the world today, because they live a life that might think that Jesus was a good person or a good teacher or a good this or a good that or maybe a good example or maybe not even real because He is not Lord of their life, they can live and ignore 
whatever they, they, they can live however they want and ignore whatever he has said because, well, that's not really for me. Paul here says this is for us and it's from the Lord. And if it's from the Lord, it's not from Paul. It means it's authoritative. It means that there's no option here. This is not a suggestion. This is not a list of like, you know, I think you should maybe try to do this and, and maybe try not to do that. But if you do, you know, it's all right. No. God calls us to holiness. Christians should live like Christians. God determines what that looks like, not us. Paul is affectionately and authoritatively calling believers to live out who they are in Christ. He's saying, because you are this, this is what your life should look like. Right? And so in a broader way, if you are truly saved, then your life will and should look like this. And we're not talking about robots either. We're talking about biblical living. Biblical living does not ignore nor reduce our personalities or our styles or even our preferences. However, those things that we have, our personality and preferences and our styles, must be conformed to God's Word. That's where we get into trouble in preaching and teaching and Christian living. Is that we put what we think, feel, want on the same level as what God has already determined. But we can't do that. He says that we... Uh, that we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Meaning this, you've already received it. This is not something that's brand new. Paul's not trying to reinvent the wheel here. He's getting them back to the very foundations of what they need. Sorensen puts it this way, he implored them, even as he had already taught them, to walk and to please God, abounding in the same. Clearly stated is our duty to live our lives to so please God. We ought to so abound therein all the more. That goal remains to this day. The purpose of your life, all of your life, is to please God. It can never be to please man. It must be to please God. It cannot even be to please your wife must be to please God. Because if you're pleasing and living rightly with God, it'll follow in your relationship with your wife, your spouse. It'll follow suit in your relationship with your children, with your grandchildren, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your loved ones, with your co-workers. But the relationship with the Lord must be right first and foremost. At the end of the day, when you make decisions, the decision must not be, is this necessarily just the right thing to do, but is this the God-glorifying thing to do? Do we need to do the right thing? Yes, and it's always the right thing to do the right thing. However, we must do so with the heart and the motivation that it is done, not just so I can say I did the right thing, but so that God would be pleased and glorified. The greatest thing that we can do in our life is to please and glorify the Lord. We miss out on so much when we miss this. The average Christian today, we know in our minds that we are to please God, to glorify God, but the average Christian does not go deeper than what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I put that? How do I put the rubber to the road with that? Because we think that I have to now do something to please Him. Rather, what it is is it's living as He's already called me to do. You say, well, isn't that doing something? It is. It's yielding to what He has required, what He has equipped us to do. I can do no work today in my flesh that will please God. 
It must be done in the Spirit. It must be done by faith. This is why when we find those in Hebrews 11, he says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. And then all throughout every other name that's given in chapter 11 of Hebrews, what do we find? By faith they did such and such. Was it by faith they just said, well, I'm going to do this. It was by faith they said, I'm going to do what God has said. I'm going to do what God requires, what God deserves. I'm going to do what God is glorified through. I'm going to do what pleases God, not what pleases me. You read in Hebrews 11, and you can almost find, and I believe almost every single person in there, at one point in time in their life or their ministry, had a moment where they go, I don't know if I want to do this. Moses, Abraham, all the way down the line. These moments and these times where they're going, I don't know, that doesn't make me exactly feel too good. I'm not so confident in that. I'm not so trusting in that. But by faith, I will trust you because it's what pleases Him. What pleases God? Holy living. Holy living is not perfectionism. Holy living is being set apart unto God and set apart for God. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is referred to as a walk but with a purpose to please God. All of life is to be lived pleasing to God and for His glory. I believe that one of the greatest things about heaven is that forever we will be able to please God perfectly. There will be no more curse. I won't fail God again. The, the greatest part about heaven is, is not so much even the reunion that we get to have, and that's a great bonus. It's not even the streets of gold or all those things, right, that you can walk up and, and just know each other and, you know, that's nice. But the greatest part, other than the presence of God Himself, is that because of the presence of God, I can no longer and will no longer sin against Him. I will no longer be an offense to my Lord. I will no longer rebel or reject or live a life of unbelief. For my faith will be made sight and I shall walk in His presence, live in His presence, and in His presence there will not be anything allowed that will defile it. There shall be no more curse. I will one day not fail my God again. And we should be now, in verse 1, abounding more and more. We should be now abounding or overflowing with a desire to walk pleasing to God. Most Christians today aren't filled up enough to overflow, let alone to overflow to please God. We are filled up with sometimes with all the wrong things. Or what we do is we pour ourselves out, we pour ourselves out without ever filling up, and then we are left dry and empty. We're left unmotivated, aggravated, agitated, everything else. And, and we must be filled up because a Christian that is filled up by God will be filled with the desire to please God all the more. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now notice how these two flow together, right? Morris writes this, When a man is saved by the work of Christ for him, it does not lie open before him as a matter for his completely free decision whether he will serve God or not. He has been bought with a price. He has become the slave of Christ. Now Morris is not saying that it's no longer a choice. He's saying you have that choice, but it should not be a choice. Does that make sense? Right? You have the choice today to freely serve God or not with your life, to freely please Him or not with your life. You have that choice. However, it's not a choice. 
If God has saved you, you are no longer yours. Your life is not yours. Your mind is not yours. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to have a heart that belongs to Him. Our money is not ours. Our schedule is not ours. Our to-do list is not ours. Our house is not ours. We owe nothing. That's the great thing. Because if I've got nothing, and I see myself as owning nothing, then that means that I'm one step closer to not having to lift up myself and go, well, well God, you took that away from me. Well, He didn't take nothing away from me because I got nothing in the first place. Everything that God might take from my hands, it's because He placed it there in the first place. We must see it as such. So Morse is saying here, while you've got the choice to choose to live freely, to obey God, to please God, it should not even be a choice at all. Living holy unto God, living a life of holiness, should not be a choice. It should be the natural response of faith. And when it's not, that's when we know we're more in the flesh than we are in faith. It does not mean that we're not saved. What it simply means is that we know what to do, but we refuse to do it. Paul had talked about this in his own life. As long as we are in this flesh, there will be this continued battle. But don't you think that God has given us all that we need to win that battle? Of course. The issue is that we let the temptation go a second too long, a second too far, without mortifying it, putting it to death, and squishing that thing. If you've got a, if you've got a spider in your kitchen and it's running towards you, what are you going to do? Scream first, then run. <laughs> Trying to get it in order here. I'm calling my wife. I did that a couple weeks ago. Can I tell, tell you that? That's okay. There was, you know, y'all know them camel crickets? I don't know what you call They're jumping spiders, but they are. they're evil. I think they're demonic. There was one in the bathroom. I wasn't going to go over to it because if it jumps at me, I'm going to jump and I'm going I'm to hurt somebody or something, right? We don't want that. So Cammie bravely took her crock and took it out. She was my hero, right? Boy, that thing's coming at you, whether it's that camel cricket that, that is ungodly, or a spider, or a snake, or a mouse, whatever that thing is that you just don't like, what are you going to do? You might run, you might scream, but what should you do? If, it's in da- if you are now in danger, what are you gonna- you're going to stomp it, aren't you? You're going to kick it, you're going to do something to get away from it. Sin is much worse than a camel cricket, jumping spider, regular spider, snake, whatever it is. Sin is far worse, and it is always approaching us. must stomp. And if we don't have the strength to stomp, you better flee. You better run. You better flee. Because we are but one moment of hesitation away to having sin overtake us. To having the flesh live for us instead of faith through us. Here, Paul reminds them in verse 2 that they have already been instructed in the basics of Christian ethics and morality. Looking out today, this is Sunday school here, right? I'm preaching to the, to the literal choir, if you will, right? You've been in church long enough. You've read your Bible long enough. You know Christian ethics, right? Let me, let's, do, let's just do a test. Is that all right? You guys ready for a pop quiz this morning? A couple of you, I won't even grade it, all right? Is it okay to lie? No. All right. Are you sure? A little, a little less confident with that part, weren't you? You're thinking, well, there was one... I would if... No! 
is it all right to commit murder? What about... No. Is it always wrong to commit murder? Yes, it's not a trick question. Is it always wrong to commit murder? Always. Is it wrong to commit adultery? All the time? Are you sure? Now, we're sure of that. Why? Is it because last week I preached on adultery? Is it because the week before that I, I preached on, 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 uh, on any of these things? On lying or, or cheating or stealing? No. The moment you are saved, you know there's some things you ought not do. And the moment you start getting in the Word, and the more you live in the Word of God, the more you'll see, I should not be living this way. And it also helps that you have God's Spirit Himself living and abiding in you that is quick to divert you, quick to convict you. However, the reason why you say, why am I in so much sin then? It's because you're not listening to Him. Sin talks a whole lot sweeter sometimes. Much more alluring, much more enticing. The Spirit speaks what Christ has given. The Spirit speaks the very Word. The Spirit and the Word work together. And if you're not walking in the Spirit, I can tell you it's because you're not walking in the Word. This is what Paul's getting at here. Get back to the very basics. We've already been instructed in these things. Therefore, keep going back to it. Build upon it. Abound more and more and more. In ancient letters, occasionally an author would remind the recipient of things that the person already knew. At times, indicating that such things should be put into practice Reminders and repetition of what people had learned were considered essential for moral progress. In the same way, once more, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the teaching they had received. For, uh, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Over and over again, he urged the Thessalonians to recall what they already knew. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 1. Cha- uh, verse 2, verse 5. Verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Chapter 5, verse 2. Right, we see this over and over. And when his teaching was remembered... His hope was that the Thessalonians would not ignore it, but would put it into practice. The orientation the author had given this congregation went beyond the fundamental teaching on the nature of God and the work of Christ to embrace the ethics that were to guide the Christian's conduct. You've been given what you need to live the Christian life. And I'm out of time. So here, let's make it simple. If you are saved today, live it out. How will you live it out? We don't have a list of do's and don'ts given to you on a spiral notebook the moment that you get saved. We've got something greater. We've got the very breathed Word of God. And it is much more than a list of do's and don'ts. It is showing us because this is who God is and what He's done for us, therefore now we may freely live by faith for Him. So today, let's make it simple. Are we living in the flesh or are we living in the faith? Are we living by our strength? Are we living by His? Are we living a life set apart for God? Set apart unto God? That's what we need today. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. God, we're grateful that we could look to Your Word. And God, while we see in these couple of verses, Lord, it might not be anything new that we haven't heard before, but God, it's certainly things that we need once more. Lord, each one of us struggles with sin daily. We struggle with our flesh, so God, help us to put it to death. Help us to die daily so that we might live for you and that you might live through us so that we might glorify you and please you. Help our hearts now to be surrendered to you as we prepare our hearts for worship, God, that you would search us, try us, show if there's any need, God, whether it's salvation or sanctification or, or whatever it might be, God. I pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.